I'll be reading to you verses 1 through 9 from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, as I uh, go through the lesson, there may be some verses here and there that I point you to, so it might be a good idea to have your phones or your Bibles out. Uh, but again, the scripture, the main scripture for this morning is Esther 2, verses 1 through 9. Please follow along as I read that to you. After these things... When the anger of King Azuhiras had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom and to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be, in, be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel and custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And verse 9 says this, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We find ourselves this morning in Esther 2. We get to meet our protagonists this morning and we see that Mordecai and Esther both live in two Worlds. First of all, we have Mordecai the Jew. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, they give a short uh, genealogy here. What this genealogy tells us is that Mordecai was a descendant of King Saul, the first king of Israel. And so, the point of this is that Mordecai is, is not only labeled as a Jew in this verse, but he has deep Jewish roots. It also lets us know that he was an important person in the government of Judah and likely an important person here in Persia. Uh, he was, uh, his ancestors were carried away with the king of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar carried them away into exile. And we'll see next week as we get into uh, the end of Esther 2 and Esther 3 that he also was a faithful man to the Jewish religion. But in all of his Jewishness, there's also these things about him that are very, very Persian. First of all, his name. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai means Marduka. Marduk is the the god over the city of Babylon, a a large city in the kingdom of Persia. So he's named after a Babylonian god. He's also a second or third generation exile living in the citadel, which means he probably lived a life very familiar to a normal, everyday Persian citizen. 
Uh, one scholar said this, Susa was his address, but it was not his home. At home, he was Mordecai the Jew, faithful servant of the living God. At work, he was plain old Mordecai, faithful servant to the empire. I think a very helpful uh, kind of comparison here would be Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were faithful to God's law, faithful to God in a, a religious and, and following sense. But what did they do? They worked for the kingdom, the kingdom of Persia. We also have Esther. Esther, also a Jew, but also a Persian. Look at verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. That is Esther. That's her Persian name. The daughter of his uncle. The, the word Hadassah means myrtle or flower. She was beautiful. Her Persian name, Esther, it means star. It's actually a reference to another, yet another Persian god, Ishtar, who is the goddess of love and war. Now, some scholars, as I was researching this week, said that Esther, by the end of the book, kind of personifies Ishtar, the, the goddess of love. She was the one whom, who pleased the king the most. She was also the goddess of war. She's the one who defended her people through her actions. But here's where I want us to really focus is this. Mordecai and Esther were real people, they lived lives, and they experienced real tension between their, their Jewishness and their Persian identity. We have to assume because they are real people that they had real dreams, real feelings, real hopes, real emotions, real beliefs. They were just like us. And their lives, as we will learn today, were very much outside their control. Their lives were very much outside their control, and they're going to be thrust into a situation that, at this point, we don't know. Did it cause excitement? Did it cause disappointment? Was it confusion? Confusing. I think the fact that these two people are very real, and they're thrust into this situation, and their lives are lived in this tension, and all these things, I think this is a great connection to our lives. I think it's a great connection to our lives. We are people with hopes and emotions and ideas and dreams, and yet our lives, all of our lives, is well outside of our control. And, 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 and oftentimes, what happens? We're thrust into situation, situations that cause us to feel certain things. And so we get to do, what we get to do today is look at Esther 2, verses 1 through 9, we get to observe how Mordecai and Esther participate in this situation that they find themselves in, how they participate. We get to see how Scripture highlights their reactions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we'll walk through the rest of the passage. Lord in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to preach Esther 1 last week, Esther 2 this week. I pray that you would bless the hearts and the ears of those listening. I pray that you would help me to be clear, help me to see the gospel for myself, and help me to share with joy what God has for us in these words of Scripture. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Uh, Esther 1 started with a party. Started with a party. Esther 2 also starts with a party, and there ain't no party like a Xerxes pity party. Here's what he's doing. He's throwing a pity party. Look at verse 1. After these things, so all that had gone on in Esther 1, remember the whole uh, uh, situation between his, his greatest subject, Vashti, the king commanded her to do something, she would not do it, all those things. After all that, he was so angry. Now what's happening? When his anger had abated, 
he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. So he's having a pity party. Poor Xerxes, poor as you hear us. He's sitting and thinking about how hard things have been, how bad things have gone, how much he missed his beautiful wife, Vashti. But in that pity party, a fresh idea comes up. We see in verses two through four that one of his servants has a great idea. The king loves it. He says, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom. Now remember, his kingdom goes from India all the way to Ethiopia. So this is looking for all the women that fit this criteria in his entire kingdom. Gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel. So first of all, we have to understand he is going to collect all of the women that meet three criteria. They have to be beautiful, they have to be single, and they have to be young, those three things. If you meet those criteria, the officials in these areas are going to take you into custody. That's the words that are used, take them into custody. Now also, this is a very unusual way for a Persian king to find a queen. Usually, the relationship that is struck uh, up here to find a queen, it's, it's politically advantageous. So you're looking for families with a certain level of clout or a certain level of power. But here, any common girl who's beautiful, who's unmarried, who's young, has the potential to be queen. Now, for a moment, let's be humans. Let's be humans. Think of all the different groups, all the people involved with this fresh idea. Think about all the families and communities, young ladies and parents and brothers and sisters. Even think of those who don't meet the criteria and are left behind. Think about how this might go. All the young, single, beautiful women in his kingdom are going to be taken into custody. That's a lot of ladies. That's a lot of families. That's a lot of communities. And, th and think about this. It's a lot of young men who, who the, the most beautiful girls in their community are going to be taken away. And this is not something you signed up for. This is the law. It's going to be done. You're going to be taken into custody. And so for some, I think it's safe to assume this is devastating. This is devastating. Those families, those young girls, those siblings, those communities, I'm guessing some of them had plans and hopes. You, you realize the vast nature of this this kingdom, there's so many different types of culture in the Persian kingdom that, that it, I'm sure is different for every culture how they reacted to this. And so for some, it would have been devastating. You realize these all but one of the women that he will collect into his harem will, will, uh, will, will spend more than one night, excuse me, all of them but one will spend only one night with the king. You can look that up in verses 15 through 18. And the rest of their lives will be spent idle in the harem of the king of Persia. But I think it's also fair to say that for some, this would have been like hitting the lottery. The idea that the common girl could be brought in and made queen, for some, I'm sure this was exciting. And so they entered into this compulsory service with excitement. And so we've, we thought about all the people involved. We've got to focus in here on Mordecai and Esther. Let's start with Esther. What would Esther's reaction have been? How would she have felt about this law? A Jewish girl who has a Jewish name at home, 
who is faithful to the Jewish religion, brought up by a faithful man to the Jewish religion, who is Jewish at home in, in Persia. That's all they've known. Suddenly she learns that she will be taken into the harem of the king. And really all we know about her reaction, we see in verse 9. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics, her portion of food, and with some ladies uh, to help her. So all we really know is that Esther was beautiful and polite. So the question really is for us, we're asking, was Esther disappointed? Had this been a, a hard left turn in her life? Had she had other dreams? Did she love someone else? Or was this something that she saw as really positive? I say with much tongue in cheek, it is, you are all lucky because you have a 40-year-old, almost 40-year-old man from the 21st century to describe to you how a young Jewish girl from ancient Persia feels. So um, listen, that is a joke, but that joke, uh, it helps us highlight something. First of all, we, on the topic, it helps us highlight the topic of how Mordecai and Esther felt, how they felt about this. The reality is this. Some of us could probably guess, we could probably guess, some of us better than others, what their feelings were, what their, their inward thoughts on this particular situation they were thrown into might be. But the reality of it is this, we don't have to. We don't have to know. In fact, the scriptures make it clear, it, it doesn't want us to know. Why? Because it doesn't tell us. It's interesting to me that as I was doing research, so many scholars on this passage, looking at the context and, and Esther's words and words about Esther, how they would jump in either side of this, this guessing game, either, wow, this must have been a real blessing for Esther, or man, this must have been the worst thing Esther could have thought to have happened to her. It just surprised me they went there because we don't know. We can't know. And it's not that it doesn't matter <clears throat> now. At some level, it, it doesn't matter. But, but God is a God that loves his people. He loves and cares about their situations that they find themselves in. He's not callous. He's not saying to Esther and Mordecai or us in our situations, we'll just deal with it. He gives us emotions so that we might feel, that we might recognize what, what's going on around us. He cares about our thoughts. He treasures us. But, but the, the, the thing about it is that's not the point of what's going on here. The point of this story is not whether it was disappointing or exciting for Esther or disappointing or exciting for Mordecai. The point of the story is something else completely. Now let's step back for a second. Let's talk about, <coughs> excuse me, what is, what is it when we feel blessed? What is it when we feel disappointed? I think that at times, that feeling of happiness, that feeling of, of, of blessedness, really is a reaction to whether or not the situation we find ourselves in, the immediate circumstances, fit our expectations or not. If things are going the way we expected, we feel, and if you were here right now, you'd say, happy, Pastor Ransom, and I'd say, that's perfect, great answer. When things don't feel blessed or happy, when we feel disappointed, what is that a, a, possibly a sign of? That things aren't going the way we thought they would. They, they aren't going by the plan that we had. 
for ourselves. So really, the question about how Mordecai and Esther felt, or even the question for ourselves, how would I have felt for Esther? How would I have felt as Mordecai? Or in the situations we find ourselves, how do I feel about this? Oftentimes that can be a question about our plans for our life. How do I feel about how this is going for me? And so I think the fact that this scripture is silent on that very fact, I think it's telling. And so we come to a, another corrective application. Who is the main character of the book of Esther? It's a question. Who's the main character? It's not Mordecai. It's not Xerxes. It's not Haman. We'll meet him in a couple weeks. He's a fascinating guy. It's not even Esther. The book of Esther is not a biography of Queen Esther. It's a story of God's sovereign salvation. God's the main character of Esther, even though his name never appears. And so then we turn that question upon ourselves. Who's the main character of our story? Who's the main character of our story? I am not the main character of my story. Jacob's not the main character of his story. Yeah, I'm sorry, Jacob. Just sit down. Don't, don't. He tried to charge me. That's crazy. Just relax. Listen, you are not the, the main character of your story. Your life, my life, Jacob's life is not about our legacy. That might be disappointing. And that's okay. Who is the main character of our story? Our story is the story, just like Esther, of God's sovereign salvation. That's, that's the point of our lives. That's the main character of our story, God's sovereign salvation. And so we can see this from the very beginning of scripture. Why did God create humanity? God created humanity that we might rule and reign over his kingdom, his kingdom. He created humans to be a reflection of himself and to take charge of that which we, he created so that it might flourish for his glory, his plan. Adam and Eve, in the beginning, were on his agenda. They were created, we were created to fulfill God's plan. But what happened? Adam and Eve, they were confronted with some different information and they thought to themselves, you know, I'm not sure I like God's plan. I'm not sure I prefer God's plan. I kind of like the idea of having my own plan. And so what was humankind's first sin? They desired to be the main character. They desired to be at the center. Humans wanted to be done with God's plan and have their own plan. James, the brother of Jesus, he really nails this on the head. James 4, he's talking about this very phenomenon. And he's calling people to, to correct their thinking. He says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, let's stop there. There's nothing wrong with saying that. There's nothing wrong with being a businessman or making a profit or being a businesswoman and, and making plans for yourself. But here's what he says to us. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And he gives us something different to think. 
something different we can think in the Holy Spirit. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Do you see the reversal here? The first character that James is talking about, that he's describing, is all about their own plan. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's how it's going to go. And, and, and so on and so forth. And guess what? When those things don't happen, they're either they're disappointed or things go the way they thought, they feel happy. But he's, he's helping us and these folks that he's writing to in his epistle to plug ourselves into something bigger, something greater. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so it's not our plan that God is working for. Last week, we talked about how God works in the mundane. It's good to add on top of that, that God's not working in the mundane for our plan. He's working to his own ends. And so in life, it's 100% true. (laughs) I love when I can be encouraging like this. Things will not go the way we imagined or planned. They just won't. I can, guarantee, I, I can guarantee that to us. Things will not go the way we imagined or planned. Hence, I'm recording a sermon on a Saturday night. It's the way it is. And, and how we view our own plan will cause us in those tiny circumstances in our lives as we run into them, to feel blessed, feel happy, because guess what? This seems to fit into the thing that I have going on with me. Or we're going to feel disappointed because, man, this is not what I planned. This is not what I wanted to do, God. Instead, what does James want us to do? Instead, what do we get to observe Esther and Mordecai doing? We get to watch them being a part of God's plan, a plan that is better than we could have imagined better than we could have planned. And the result of that plan, those results are greater than the results of our plans could ever be. This is the very reason that Jesus came to earth. This is the reason Jesus came, to save us from our wayward, illegitimate kingdom. To save us all from our own little wayward, illegitimate kingdom. Kingdom and to tie us back into God's plan for us. And so, what church can we pull away from Esther 2 1 through 9 as we see Esther and Mordecai? We don't know how they feel, and that might drive us crazy, but what do we see? We see them understanding and plugging themselves in to the greater good, God's plan. And so, how can this help us? How should this guide us? It should guide us to the idea, to the fact that our lives, our lives are to be marked with a discovery and joyous compliance with God's plan. Do you hear that? So what should our lives be? Discovering what God's plan is for us. Reading the word of God, praying, getting with other Christians, fellow Christians, and and hearing what they're learning, and, and learning little by little what is God's plan for us. And then as we learn what he wants for us, complying with it, enjoy. Why? Because we don't have to have our own plan. God has created us to to bring his plan to fruition. And so I know some of you might be thinking, well, Ransom, I just don't know what God's plan is for me. I don't even know a little bit. Well, let me give you a, a summary. So maybe get a pen or something, write this down. What is God's plan for your life? And here it is. 
First of all, it was part of God's plan for your life to send Jesus Christ, his son, to earth to defeat our enemy sin. That was one of the first parts of his plan for us. His plan was that through the work of Jesus, in the future, all wrongs will be made right. That's in the future, so that's kind of where we're heading is is watching Jesus Christ do that through his church and when he comes again and all those things. But in in the right here, right now, here's even more specific his plan for you and for me. His plan is that we would believe in Jesus Christ. His plan is that we would follow Jesus Christ. His plan is that we would obey Jesus Christ. His plan is that we would grow deeper and deeper and closer and closer in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's God's plan for us. That's his grand plan. And we can see how we fit into it. So last week we saw how we probably need to start at least evaluating, if not deconstructing, our expectations on how God works in our life. God works through the mundane. He doesn't always split the sky open. In fact, more often than not, he's working behind the scenes. This morning we're seeing that, okay, we've got to, at some level, deconstruct our demand that our plan come to fruition. We've got to deconstruct that, at least be confronted by the fact that maybe some of the things that we experience in this life are disappointing or or that we feel happy about them because we are on our own agenda. And then lastly, this morning, and we'll see in the coming weeks, instead of submitting to our plan, there's this blessed joy in submitting to God's plan for us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Esther thus far. Lord, thank you for uh, the insights that you are Uh, giving us. We are by no means squeezing every drop of information, Lord, but you are faithful to us when we need it, Lord. And so as we go through Esther in these times with COVID, with inclement weather, with frustrations in our lives, disappointments, with moments of joy and happiness, we're called above all to see ourselves in light of you, and your plan for us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for myself, for my family, for my church family, for my brothers and sisters, all those listening, that we would submit, discover and submit joyously to your plan for our lives. Give us a sense, Lord, in which our plan seems foolhardy, in which our plan seems like a dead end because, Lord, if it's not your plan, it is. And so, Father, not through my words or my ideas, but in the power of the Spirit, convict each and every one of us where these things are true because they're true of all of us. We all in some way expect you to show up in a way that serves us in some way All of us expect you to serve us in our agenda. And Lord, that is not the path to true blessedness. Blessedness is being in the presence of God and following his will. So Lord, I pray for our church that in any way we're not taking this seriously, 
that we would let the Spirit speak to us in that area and we would respond again in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please join us with Jacob for our next congregational song.